0: I wanna acknowledge that some of the images and things we're talking about this morning are really really hard and, and heartbreaking. And so I just invite you to take a deep breath and to be gentle with your heart as we, um, as we reflect today. So I don't know about you, but usually when a person stands up to read the Bible passage, I kind of space out, (laughs) which is embarrassing because I'm like a Bible nerd. So you'd think I'd be able to focus long enough to hear a whole passage. Instead, it's like someone opens their Bible to read and my brain immediately responds with, hmm, what should we eat for lunch today? Let's replay that conversation from yesterday. And and by the time my brain is done telling me things, the people around me are saying, thanks be to God. And I think, whoops, missed it. Again. It's probably just me that this happens to. I'm sure the rest of you pay rapt attention, know exactly what's happening in any given scripture passage, and are riveted by the majestic poetry of it all. But just in case, someone else in this room has a wandering brain like me, I'm going to read the passage a little bit differently today. So today's reading is from Isaiah chapter 40, verses one through 11. And what is important to know about this passage before we read it, is that it's written for a people who are in exile. Jerusalem has been destroyed by Babylon and the people of God have been displaced from their land. And in this particular passage, we have three main characters, God, the heavenly host, so imagine like a choir of angels or something, and Isaiah. It's not super clear if you just open your Bible and start reading who is talking when, so I've written the text out on the screen for you in lines like a play, so it's easier to see whose voice we are hearing. Make sense? Okay. So, God speaks first, saying, Comfort, oh, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So, basically, God is talking to the heavenly host here, Isaiah is listening in, and telling them to comfort God's people because their suffering is coming to an end. And then the heavenly host responds, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all the people shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And now the heavenly host turns and addresses Isaiah. And the heavenly host says, cry out to which Isaiah objects. What shall I cry? All people are grass. Their constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. In other words, Isaiah isn't buying this comfort business. People continue to fade and die. There is no hope. The heavenly host then responds to Isaiah. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings. Lift up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. And then here, this is the final little bit of the passage, and I've gone ahead and changed God's pronouns here because he is such a limiting word for God, in my opinion. Uh, Not only is God beyond gender, I I don't like he in particular because I don't wanna taint the holy mystery with patriarchal associations. So here's the last part. See, the Lord God comes with might and their arm rules for them. Their reward is with them and their recompense before them. They or she, if you prefer, will feed her flock like a shepherd. She will gather the lambs in her arms and carry them in her bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. We hear the voice of God through these words. Thanks be to God. So now my question is, did reading it like that help you follow along? Okay, I was worried I maybe just made the boring part longer, okay. (laughs) But in case I still lost you, here's a very brief recap. God tells the heavenly host to go comfort God's people because their suffering is over. The heavenly host is like, yes, this is great news. Everyone clear the way. God is coming and she is glorious. Come on, Isaiah. You have people feet, not all these scary wings and wheels of eyes like us. You go tell them. That was a Bible joke for my fellow Bible nerds. Okay. But Isaiah is like, no, tell them what? People keep dying. What could I possibly say that is hopeful? And then the heavenly host responds with, yeah, it's rough out there, but we promise you God is mighty and she's ready to swoop in and tenderly carry her people in her bosom. As I was preparing for this sermon, I kept being reminded of Advent 11 years ago, because that was the year that two significant things defined Advent for me. One, the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School which took place on December 14th, 2012, killing 21st graders and six adults. And two, I learned that my husband was in a sexually inappropriate relationship with one of my congregants. And there I was trying to write a sermon. And the whole host of Advent celebrators worldwide seemed to be shouting at me, cry out, can give the people some hope? You're a preacher, it's your job. And I remember thinking, what do I tell them? What could I possibly say that is hopeful? I keep remembering that year in 2012 because I feel much the same this year. My personal life is honestly a bit of a wreck at the moment, but more importantly, there is horrific death and violence plaguing our world, most especially in that slice of the world where Jesus himself was born. Biblical commentator Rosie Candethil says about Isaiah's message to comfort the people that probably for the prophet, these words sounded at best unbelievable and at worst, a cruel joke because she points out Isaiah is being tasked with bringing a message of hope to people who have suffered, quote, displacement, deportation, defeat, separation from home, their ancestors, and the lands that they've known. Isaiah is mystified that God and the heavenly host would give him such a task. What do I tell them? And Rosie encourages us not to forget that the context of this Isaiah passage is deep loss. She says this passage is offered out of profound darkness, I would call it profound despair, and that perhaps perhaps is precisely where hope meets us. Hope, she says, is not a denial of loss. So if you are one of those people for whom comfort feels like a long shot, this passage is not a mockery of you. It is a passage that meets you at the most tender center of the bruise. As I have tried to wrestle real, authentic hope out of this text in the last couple of weeks, it seems impossible to me to read a passage about Jerusalem. About Jerusalem. And not talk about the real loss that is happening in that area of the world today. Jerusalem is located in the West Bank, a sacred site for Jews, Christians, and Muslims, and is located approximately 60 miles from the Gaza Strip, where more than 20,000 Palestinians have been killed by the Israeli government, nearly half of whom are children. It seems irresponsible to me to preach on the second Sunday of Advent, the Sunday of peace, without addressing the profound lack of peace in the very region where Jesus was born and lived out all his days. My all-time favorite quote about peace is that line from Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham jail, when he writes, "'I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers, First, I must confess that over the past few years I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's greatest stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. Shallow understanding, he says, from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. I love this quote because I think far too often those of us with privilege misuse the word peace. We even misuse spirituality to gain for ourselves negative peace. Here's what I mean. We meditate to find peace of mind when what we are really doing is blocking out the very real suffering of the world around us so that we don't have to feel it. That isn't peace. That's spiritual bypassing. The peace of Christ is a very different thing because it it empowers us to engage suffering rather than bypass it. If you think Christ was a bypasser, spend a few minutes staring at a crucifix. God incarnate on the cross is the definition of solidarity, of suffering with. What does it mean to wait for the world to change for peace? We can think of waiting as sitting back, letting things unfold, believing nothing we could possibly do could make a difference, so we might as well just tend to our own. Why engage, why worry, why feel? Waiting in that way might provide you with some peace because disengaging and bypassing are always more comfortable than engagement, but it's negative peace. It might be the absence of tension, but it is not the presence of justice. The only kind of waiting that I believe has moral and spiritual integrity is solidarity. We must suffer with those who are suffering and waiting and striving for peace. Otherwise, we're not really waiting. We're just ignoring. To wait is to weep. In King's letter from Birmingham jail, in that paragraph right before the quote I just shared, He writes, we must not forget that everything Adolf Hitler did in Germany was legal and everything the Hungarian freedom fighters did in Hungary Hungary was illegal. It was illegal to aid and comfort a Jew in Hitler's Germany. Even so, I am sure that had I lived in Germany at that time, I would have aided and comforted my Jewish brothers. I remember reading books about Nazi Germany as a kid, Cory ten Boom, Anne Frank. And wondering, if I had lived in Germany during the Holocaust, would I have been one of the ones who helped the Jews? Both sides of my family are German. So what kind of German would I have been, had I been there? I've also wondered, what if I had been alive with MLK Jr. during the Civil Rights Movement? Would I have watched the news coverage, aghast but safe on my couch? Or would I have shown up? Would I have been there? Would I have marched on Selma? Would I have spoken out? After all, I am white, so what kind of white person would I have been had I been there? I don't really worry about whether I would have belonged to the KKK. I don't really think there's a version of me that does that. What I do wonder is whether I would have put my own body between the KKK member and a black body, or whether I would have been someone who stayed home. Would I have chosen the peace of ignorance and inaction? Or would I have chosen to fight for actual peace that upholds justice for all? Here's the thing, I don't have to wonder what I would have done. All I have to do is ask myself what I am doing or saying right now in real time to stop the violence in Gaza let's talk about what's happening in Jesus' homeland. Listen to this quote from the Human Rights Watch. At least five categories of major violations of international human rights laws and humanitarian law characterize the occupation. One, unlawful killings. Two, forced displacement. Three, abusive detention. Four, the closure of the Gaza Strip and other unjustified restrictions on movement and five, the development of settlements along with accompanying discriminatory policies that disadvantage Palestinians. This is not a quote from this month or last. It's from 2017. The Israeli government has been committing atrocities against the Palestinian people for decades. Israel is the only country in the world that automatically and systematically prosecutes children in military courts that lack fundamental fair trial rights and protections. Israel prosecutes between 500 and 700 Palestinian Palestinian children every year. Please do not mishear me. I am deeply grieved for the 32 children taken hostage by Hamas and it is morally bankrupt to denounce the actions of Hamas and not say a word about the five to seven hundred child hostages taken by Israel on an annual basis. Israel has attacked Gaza multiple times before October 7th, 2008, 2012, 2014, never taking appropriate measures to protect civilians and frequently targeting civilian structures. Israeli security forces routinely use excessive force, wounding and killing demonstrators. Since 1967, Israeli authorities have facilitated the transfer of its civilians to the West Bank including East Jerusalem in violation of the fourth Geneva Convention. Israel applies Israeli civil law to the settlers it has placed in the West Bank, affording them legal protections, rights, and benefits that are not extended to the Palestinians who were living there first. The settlers are provided with infrastructure, services, and subsidies that are denied to Palestinians. Discriminatory policies make it nearly impossible for Palestinians to obtain building permits, forcing them to either leave their homes or go ahead with necessary construction, which could result in their homes being bulldozed on the grounds that they don't have permits. Israel has arbitrarily excluded hundreds of thousands of Palestinians from its population registry, restricting their ability to live in and travel from the West Bank and Gaza, separating families, restricting access to medical care and educational opportunities, and perpetuating unemployment. Israel has revoked the residency of over 130,000 Palestinians in the West Bank and over 14,000 in East Jerusalem since 1967. Again, this is all from a human rights watch in 2017. So the numbers now are not much greater. I'm reading old stats on purpose because it is critical to understand that what Israel is doing in Gaza right now is absolutely not new. And it is by no means simply a reaction to Hamas. The escalation of violence since October 7th has not taken place in a vacuum. Israeli authorities have incarcerated hundreds of thousands of Palestinians since 1967, the majority receiving trials in military courts with a nearly 100% conviction rate. On average, hundreds of Palestinians each year are placed in administrative detention based on secret evidence without trial. Detainees, including children, face harsh harsh conditions and mistreatment. Of course, it is true that you can find horrible violence taking place in many other areas of the world. It is true that Israeli civilians have faced violence from Hamas. But here is why speaking up against the Israeli government in particular is so critical at this time. First of all, this is different from other violence in its scope and size. This violence is a genocide. It is an ethnic cleansing and it is coming on the heels of 75 years of illegal occupation and apartheid. Since October 7th, Israel has killed more than 20,000 Palestinians. To put that in perspective, if you were to adjust for population size, that would be the equivalent of killing two and a half million Americans, which is the equivalent of murdering every single person in Las Vegas, Boston, Detroit, Seattle, and Atlanta combined. Most of the Palestinians who live in the Gaza Strip are already refugees who were forcibly displaced from their homes during the Nakba of 1948. Since 2007, Israel has placed a blockade on the Gaza Strip, restricting water, fuel, and other supplies and preventing most Palestinians from leaving the Strip. More than 80% of Palestinians in Gaza live in poverty, according to the UN, and prior to the latest escalation of violence, about 95% of Palestinians in Gaza did not have access to clean drinking water due to Israel's restrictions. This is different from other violence in scope and size. Second of all, this violence is different from other violence because of our direct complicity as American people. The US is by far the biggest supplier of military aid to Israel contributing more than $130 billion since its founding. Israel is the largest recipient of US foreign military aid and more than 80% of Israel's weapons imports come from the US. On Friday, the US was the only nation to vote against the UN resolution for a ceasefire. Back in mid-October, the US was also the lone country at the UN to veto a call for humanitarian pauses to deliver life-saving aid to millions in Gaza. When people ask me why I haven't said more to condemn Hamas, my answer is simple. My government isn't funding Hamas. My government is funding Israel. The United States government and the government of Israel are using Hamas as a scapegoat to commit a genocide of the Palestinian people. Third of all, this violence is different from other violence because of the direct complicity of Christianity and Christian Zionism. When it espouses the toxic theology that Jews have a God-given right to the land of Israel even if it means eradicating by murder or displacement the current inhabitants. Some Christians even believe that Jesus will not return until until Jews have taken back the land. In other words, there is a strand of Christian theology that believes in and upholds a genocidal and colonizing deity. And if you question them, they will falsely accuse you of being anti-Semitic rather than recognizing your critique as appropriately humane. For all of these reasons and more, I know that if I don't stand with Palestine now, I also would not have stood with Jews during the Holocaust or black folk during the civil rights movement. If you don't believe me, I beg you to start following Palestinian journalists in Gaza before they're all dead. I have watched toddlers being pulled out of the rubble I have watched groups of civilian men, not combatants, stripped naked and humiliated by the Israeli army. I have seen children needing amputations with no anesthesia. I have seen the rotting carcasses of babies in ICU beds that were left behind after hospitals were bombed. I have seen Palestinian prisoners, better known as hostages in my opinion, being released in exchange for Israeli hostages. After years of abuse and captivity without trial, some of them still children. All violence is horrible. But what is happening in Gaza is something different. It's something worth our rapt attention, something that requires our intervention no matter how insignificant our contributions may feel. This is something that history will always remember. The way we have Holocaust museums today, one day there will be mass documentation of the atrocities against Gaza, committed primarily by the Israeli government with the backing of the U.S. government. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term. The people of Jerusalem, of Gaza and the West Bank and Bethlehem have suffered long enough and there will be no peace, no peace at all until we are as willing as God to show up in flesh and blood right at the most tender center of the bruise. There's not that much, if I'm being totally honest with you, that keeps me tied to Christianity these days. But the incarnation might just be one of them. The birth of Jesus was God saying, I'm not going to stay above the fray, safe and undisturbed in heavenly bliss. I'm going down there. I'm going to be a human who sweats and bleeds, feels hunger and thirst, bruises when he gets hit and vomits when he's sick, relaxes when he is embraced and stops crying when he's fed at his mother's breast. To be an Advent people, I think, is to mimic God in the radical act of showing up when you have the privilege not to. To be an Advent people is to speak comfort in the midst of profound despair. But if your words of comfort don't include acts of creating justice, it is hollow comfort. Now I realize this sermon probably didn't, like, put you in the mood to go do holiday crafts. (laughs) I hope you can hear my heart I hope you can hear my heart and understand why I felt it was worth it to ruin the holiday mood because if Advent isn't helping us show up more like God would show up then what's the point? To echo both Isaiah and Martin Luther King, I have an advent dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. I really only scratched the surface of the horror in Gaza. I could go on for pages and pages. I won't, but I could. Humanitarian organizations are calling it the worst humanitarian crisis of our lifetime and our government is making it happen. Which to me means that we cannot afford to look away. We can't afford to carry on with life as usual. We can't afford to stay neutral. We can't afford to let men in power convince us that this is more complicated than it is. We can't afford to be people of good will but shallow understanding. I know that you and I, by our lonesome, are not going to stop or even slow the death toll in Gaza. But I know